Geekville Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, Geeks and Geekettes, this is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville, and the host of Geekville Radio, welcome you to another induction to the lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. And in case you're new to the show, as the name implies, we induct lesser-known inductees. We're not going to talk Darth Vader, we're not going to talk Spider-Man or anything like that. We talk about trendsetters and things that set precedence for what to come we've inducted superheroes we've inducted franchises we've inducted real people with forrest j ackerman and this marks a first because we are inducting our first major motion picture into the geekville hall of fame and to explain this induction i will welcome in my usual co-host from the nice soft padded cell in south kakalaki crazy train jonathan bullock all aboard ladies and gentlemen uh if we sound a little different we are actually recording this around lunchtime on a Saturday, which is unusual for us. It's usually uh, evenings when we record. So I think uh, both of us probably just had lunch and, 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 and a cup of coffee. So if our voices sound a little different, that might explain why. <laughs> yeah. we, don't have, we don't have 12 hours of being awake dragging us down. Um, right. Part of that's my fault. Uh, I have, I've, Seth has wanted to record this for a week now, and I keep delaying because I'm having personal issues. It's had to set it back. And so I apologize for that because I think Seth did a pretty good job at teasing online on our social media presence at Geekville Radio and at Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame what's to come. So I apologize for that. Let me also add the response that we've gotten from from just those teasers that you've put out, Seth, has been amazing to me. I, I always knew I was a big fan of this movie and understood its, its historical significance Obviously, I, I'm not the only geek that feels this way. And to take some of the heat off of you and put it on me, let me also explain that there were several people that expressed an interest in being involved in this particular episode. And let me go ahead and just get this on the public record right now. And like I said, this is a decision I, I've made, and Seth has kind of ceded to me on this one. I'll let him be the white hat. I'll be the black hat on this one. We have lots of, of guests on Geekville Radio because that is an open discussion for just the, the general geek community. But lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame is something that I don't feel, and this is not a, 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 an attack on any of our listeners. I appreciate y'all listening. It's something that we're doing. It's, it's a decision we make collectively as the Geekville Radio staff. And I hope you read my air quotes when I said staff. <laughs> that it's, it's just it, – it, it's our thing. It's not that we don't appreciate your listening. It's not we don't appreciate you, your input. It's just, I don't want y'all to have to put your name on something to be stuck to it. We'll take that <laughs> for whatever good or bad that is. And so, yes, we, we always encourage involvement and interaction with our listeners. This just isn't one of the podcasts that we decided together. Like I said, it was more my idea than it was Seth. I'll take the heat for this. This is just one of the one of the podcasts we do that, that we don't really have guests on unless it would be an expert in a particular – like if we were to do something – about lesser-known Doctor Who thing. First off, it would probably be done on examining the Doctor. But second, having Mark on would make sense because, one, he's a member of the staff here at Geekville Radio, and two, he is what I would consider an expert. It's no different than our other sister podcasts, like Examining the Dead that I host, which is horror-centric, or Classic Wrestling Memory, where we have experts on about whatever those topics are. So... That's this is not a knock on you listeners. It's a not it's just a decision we've made. If we ever talk about something on Geekville Radio proper and you want to expand on it because you're a big fan or passionate about that topic, let us know. We'd love to have you on that particular podcast. But this podcast we want to keep just kind of like I said, Geekville Radio staff, which is small. Basically myself, Seth, Uncle Greg Okaba from Pittsburgh and and Mark. British Mark is Mark, as, <laughs> as right. Seth likes to call him his co-host. In British Mark from America, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Those those are your four right now permanent staff members of of Geekville Radio. But anyway, I just didn't want I didn't want people to think that you were just kind of shunning them. I, I figured I'd take mm-hmm. the heat off of you, Seth. Right. So there you go. But yes, the underlying score that played during that rant is from the 1979 Disney classic. At least we call it a classic, The Black Hole. It's pretty 
pretty famous, I think, for being one of the better movies that seem to be inspired by Star Wars. But what we're going to talk about here, we're going to open up some eyes, hopefully, about this, that the origins of this movie go back well before Star Wars, because it actually started in 1974, because the the 1970s were rife with disaster films. There was the Poseidon Adventure, uh, Earthquake, the Towering Inferno, and of course, how many airport movies were there? There were like four or five. And I think fact, I, what I remember the most was, was, it, was it Concord's 1979? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I think I vaguely remember commercials for that. And the reason why so many of these disaster films existed, why they were so plentiful, is because they drew money. Just to give you an example, the Poseidon Adventure in 1972 earned $125 million and loosely translated to $2020, that comes out to about $700 million. So it, it's only natural. And this is before sci-fi was uh, a big thing. Before, and we'll get to Star Wars in a second, before sci-fi became mainstream, you might have had Logan's Run, you might have had Planet of the Apes and uh, 2001. But it would make sense, especially since 2001 was successful for its time, it makes sense that there would have been a science fiction disaster film. And that's what was originally pitched. There were writers by the name of Bob Barbash and Richard Landau the, Any relation to Martin? I, I don't think so. But <laughs> yeah, well, well, if you didn't make the joke, I would have. But <laughs> uh, they made the initial pitch in 1974 based on the disaster film genre about a space station in peril, and suspense would be getting the inhabitants home safely before the, the station is destroyed. Now, the concept is very much like a sci-fi version of the Poseidon Adventure, which took place on a cruise liner and also, coincidentally, starred Roddy McDowell and Ernest Borgnine. But this sci-fi pitch was approved by Disney and given the working title Space Station One. Barbash and Landau submitted this outline in 1974, later that year, and producer Winston Hibbler, emphasis on the B there, B, not T, Winston Hibbler proposed the danger be changed from a supernova to a black hole, because... In the early 70s, black holes were still like this new, amazing, fascinating discovery. Well, I guess they're still fascinating, but it's just like, I think the first black hole was discovered in like 66 or something like that. It was, it was definitely on the, on the public conscience at that time. Right, right. So it makes sense that you do something that's still new right now being taught in schools and all that. So it makes sense that all this would be the setting for the disaster sci-fi film, Space Station One. Now... Over the next few years, the film was constantly rewritten by multiple writers. See, we, we could probably do an entire podcast, probably two hours, just on the actual day-by-day day or month-by-month month what happened as far as the creation of the movie. But to make a long story short, the film was constantly rewritten by multiple writers. The title changed names over time. It was Probe One, Space Probe One. Back to Space Station One, all that good jazz. But come 1976, so we're talking two years later, Hibbler passes away. He seemed like he really believed in the project because he actually had retired and come back because they were still working on it. And that left producer Ron Miller, who originally signed Hibbler, the film in the first place, to take over the project. Now, stop me if I'm if I'm missing anything here. No, no, you're, you're all, I think one of the most important things to, to note during all this is there was definitely a shift, and I would say damn near seismic shift, at Disney from what they were known for. You mm-hmm. have to realize we're and talking Miller was responsible for it, yeah. Yes, he was. This was not the Disney of 2020 that owned all these other intellectual properties. And like killed Luke Skywalker, but um, right, right. Yeah. but but we, no, that's another show. Lesser known, <laughs> <laughs> lesser known. Luke Skywalker does not qualify there. <laughs> is is that not only were they moving more into live action, which being children of the seventies, like myself and Seth, where yes, we're children of the eighties. What we mean by that is we were teenagers in the eighties, but true children, we were actually kids in the seventies. We grew up with. The Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday nights showing the old animated stuff that yeah. our parents had seen. 
But mm-hmm. there was no such thing as DVD, you know, VHS and, and DVDs yet. So let alone that, YouTube or streaming right. services or all that jazz. Right, exactly. So what really existed at that point was they had moved into live action. Well, quite frankly, it was one of my favorite eras. And I know nostalgia, rose-colored glasses. But you're talking Escape from Witch Mountain, Cat mm-hmm. from Outer Space. What else was in that era? You had the Apple Dumpling Gang. Pete's Dragon, which I know had animation in it. but Right, where know. they would mix the two. And really, the only animated movie I can think of that came out of that era, there were two, and two of my favorites, once again, nostalgia, was The Rescuers and Fox and the Hound. Mm-hmm. Um, Love Fox and the Hound, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, it's Kurt Russell's. Do I need to say anything else? <laughs> Anybody who listens to Sammy the Dead knows my thoughts on, on, on Kurt Russell. So anyway, <laughs> not only was it a shift to live action, but Miller also wanted to, I don't want to say rebrand Disney, but understood that cultural norms and, and were changing. So it was it was they went into it with the idea of making it a PG rated film, which Disney had never done before. So now it's a seismic shift in two ways. One, the rating they're going for, but more importantly, the fact that they're going to continue to maintain this this live action thing. Something that Disney, let's be honest, just wasn't known for. That just wasn't their thing. And and I think that was during all this process that you've been talking about, it was always intended to be PG. This wasn't just like a, a spur of the moment decision from the, from day one. Hibbler, I think, envisioned it as a as as a PG movie. Yeah, because remember, Star and, Wars was PG. Right. We'll get to that and in a minute. We, but and we could talk at length about how what was PG back in the seventies because this is bef- before the the days of PG thirteen and NC seventeen. There was what a PG movie was, what an X movie was, what an R movie was. Those three ratings are very different now because there is no X anymore. It's NC-17. Those really changed the way movies were marketed and what you could, I don't want to say get away with, but I can't think of a better term in making a movie. So just keep that in mind as we talk about all this, that this was this idea of live action, this idea of sci-fi and this idea of a PG rating. These were all something that was very much uh, thought of and was the plan from the jump. Right. And we'll get into another thing as far as the marketing goes, and we'll we'll tie it back to the current era. But getting back to uh, mid or late 1976, Winston Hibbler passed away. Ron Miller took over the project. And by 1976, this is after two years, Miller could tell that the disaster movie genre was fading. And he decided to take the film in a new direction. More writers were hired for additional rewrites to focus more on the characters and less on the disaster element. Now, come early 1977, going on almost three years here, Disney started growing impatient. The project was already three years old, no end in sight, and they shelved the film in spring of 1977. And anybody who knows history knows that, oh boy, were things about to change in the movie industry. Yeah, Hollywood was going to go through (laughs) its own seismic shift. Right, right. Because a month or two later, May 1977, there was a certain little independent film called Star Wars that was released. And suddenly science fiction was mainstream. Interest in the film. And everybody started churning out sci-fi ripoffs. So Disney went back to Space Station One. You know, it renewed, and yet another outline was submitted, but this version added emphasis on the black hole itself. Now, by this time, the original director, John Hugh, left the project and was replaced by Gary Nelson. He's done a lot of TV. You look at his IMDb. I'll link his IMDb page on the show notes at geekvilleradio.com. He did a whole bunch of TV for Disney. As far as theatrical films, he's probably best known for doing Freaky Friday in 75, which I think had... Was a Mama Brady in that? I, I think was in that. Florence to, Henderson. Uh, yeah, I think Florence Henderson was in it. I, I, maybe I, she was. I know. can't remember. But that 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 once again is what what we're talking about about the about the live action movies that were more prevalent in the seventies coming out of Disney. Yeah, right. Exactly, and that was G rated. Probably the biggest thing everybody remembers is Florence Henderson on the hang glider. And but yeah, they they tried to hire Gary Nelson to do it. They gave him the script. And he didn't like it. He said it was filled with the standard Disney-like characters. There was a screenwriter by the name of Jerry Day hired to rework the script to please Nelson. And this is around the time after so many 
reworks and renames. This is when the film was finally given the final title of The Black Hole. And this is also where Miller made the formal decision. Uh, It was probably to please Gary Nelson, but it's like, okay, we're going to make this for adults. We're going to trim down the cast because earlier drafts had families aboard the Cygnus. And we'll get to the Cygnus in a second, but there were families on board, much kind of like the modern Star Trek. But probably, also, you, probably also probably drawing on the popularity in the 50s of Lost in Space. You yes, know? yes. But yeah, you have probably. to understand Lost in Space, of course, was supposed to be a science fiction retelling of, of Swiss Family Robinson. Right. And if you look at the credits for the black hole, I think there's seven, maybe eight actually credited characters, because obviously the, ro- the robots were credited for the, for the voice roles. But there are only like seven or eight credited characters. And like you said before, this was disney's first ever pg rated film because miller openly stated when you look at some of these other movies all these action films and such they were making a whole lot more money than disney was and that's kind of oh yeah it's one of those things that kind of makes it chuckle a little bit now when you think about it oh disney isn't making enough money well at that time not compared to other companies there were were companies making hundreds of millions and then their movies are making 15 60 million so you can kind of understand where Miller's coming yep. from, saying, "Yeah, we 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 got to kind of take take the roof off what we're doing." Yeah, exactly. I I think the other thing too. Remember, not we're what maybe ten years out from having the PG thirteen rating, mm-hmm. right? I, I think just just that's normal social progress, I guess, for lack of a better term. That that the the social and uh, mores of a society are going to change over time, and, and they were changing in the seventies, and what was considered taboo 20 years earlier was not so much anymore. And we, we've talked about before on Geekville proper and on examining the dead, how, what the comics code was. And you're talking the era when Stan Lee completely says the heck with the comics code and brings vampires back into comic books and blade is created voluntarily says, okay, we're not going to put the comics code thing on this. Right. Yeah. So it was just something that, that people that were the decision makers in the creative the creative entertainment media were just like, why are we that worried about it? Right. If you don't like it, then you don't have to watch it. You don't have to buy don't it. Watch it. As a, as a retired professional wrestler, let me tell you, one of the biggest things that you'll hear from wrestlers all the time, because wrestling is one of those forms of entertainment that gets derided a lot. We all like to say, we are not forcing you to come to the shows. You don't have to watch our television. There's this thing called on off button on your remote. And, and I think that was kind of becoming the mindset in Hollywood. And Disney was got on board with that. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it's one of those things that happens every so often. I remember still back in the days when they were made jokes about you can't say the word hell on television. Right. And now there, there's a couple of four-letter words that you hear on television that you wouldn't hear 30 years ago. Right. Right. And not that this is the only thing he did. Lord knows he was a genius and everything. But what was the first routine that got George Carlin famous? Yeah, seven <laughs> seven words you can't say on television. So yeah, it just is what it is. And, and I think that as we could have we could have literally multiple episodes that were uh, that are debates on what should and shouldn't be allowed, what's in good taste and decency. But I think that's always going to change. I just do, especially in this day and age of multiple Political channels pro- being available through cable, satellite streaming, whatever. Right, yeah. the internet is it, it is kind of a vast wasteland isn't it oh, yeah. <laughs> but getting back to the film because we're starting to get into casting and such the characters and the premise because as stated before the premise changed from a straight-up sci-fi disaster film to one with a villain because jerry day submitted the script with a villain dr hans reinhardt and this new premise saw explorers finding reinhardt's ship the uss cygnus in deep space. And at first, all seems well until Reinhardt's true insidious history and behavior is discovered. Now, this plot sounds awfully similar to another Disney classic film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but with Reinhardt mm-hmm. in the Captain Nemo role. So it's kind of funny that a film that began as a sci fi adaption of the Poseidon Adventure became a sci fi adaption of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I just think and that's think kind of you, funny. <laughs> yeah, and I think you and I had discussed when we talked about this beforehand that one must have, first off, it's kind of funny when we talk about how Disney was changing the script for them. It could be, it could be argued that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which came out in the 60s, was their first successful 
live action movie getting mm-hmm. away from animation. So yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I can think of one before that. Yeah, and, but and I'm, and if I'm for long listeners, please let me know. But on top of that, when not the movie, not the movie, but the novel Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, that was sci-fi at the time when it came out. That was what was science fiction like, was like, like eighteen eighties or something like that, or eighteen sixties, yeah, yeah, late 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 eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. H.G. Wells and and Jules Verne and a little bit Jack London, they were the they were the sci-fi of that era. We don't think of it as sci-fi now. We think of it more as steampunk. But you have to understand that's they're still dealing with fantastical technology and scientific breakthroughs, but they're looking at it through the lens of what was cutting-edge technology of that time period, which would have been the steam engine. This is pre-internal combustible petroleum-based motors. Yeah, yeah. So, no, no Mr. Fusion, no electrical power. Yeah, and we were far away from conquering the atom and nuclear physics. Now, another major change to the final script, like we said, was the elimination of the families and children on board the Cygnus. There are only seven or eight credited roles. Now, we're going to go through some of the other roles here that aren't credited, but I figured we'd go through the cast here because there's definitely some tropes to uh, be followed here. Uh, Captain Dan Holland, who was portrayed by Robert Forrester, who we lost, I think, last year, I want to say. Last year, at the end of the year. Yeah. He he was captain of the Palomino, which was an exploring vessel trying to seek out habitable planets for a potential colonization, like like the Enterprise. I think he's considered kind of the main hero of the film. I wouldn't necessarily call him the white meat babyface. He seems a little more character because he's uh, kind of hard-nosed, no-nonsense type. Oh, yeah. I, I can't express my love enough of Robert Forster. Mm-hmm. I think he's just, a, this is the role that I will remember him most for. For me, it will always be alligator, but I'm the horror guy. So go figure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and as I've pointed out about his role in alligator, which was released a uh, year later in 1980, that was the role that Quentin Tarantino saw him in that made him made made him cast him in Qu- and Jackie Brown. So but I also wonder would Robert Forster got cast in alligator if he hadn't have been a success in, in this movie. So, you know, right. Right. And I think he was cast because I want to say he played a cop in a TV show before that. I forget the name now. Right. But but I, I think that's what, what, what got him hired. But I just think Robert Forster is one of those often forgotten, incredibly awesome character actors that were just all over the place in Hollywood in that era. We just don't have anymore. I don't think I'm wrong in saying he was a man's man and, and he portrayed that well. Right. Right. E- even in this movie, because when we get to... The next character here, Dr. Kate McRae, who is paid by Yvette Mimieu, she's one of the scientists. Her father served on the Cygnus, so hence there's the plot outline there when they discover the ship. Her father was on the Cygnus for his disappearance, and she has this ESP link to Vincent that somehow she's able to communicate mentally with Vincent. And if you look, it's not overt. If you look closely, there is definitely a, a romantic touch between Holland and McRae because notice Dan Holland is the only one that touches her I think in the whole movie if I recall correctly and that's just something that just doesn't exist anymore in Hollywood Uh, a lot of that's the social mores of our time but Robert Forster was that alpha male good looking not like like, like Brad Pitt good looking just ruggedly good looking guy that you could buy could win as you like to say when it comes to wrestling could win a fight looks like you Mm -hmm. could win a fight but also looks like he probably is uh, uh, good looking enough that the ladies would be interested. Right. Right. If he's not in a fight, he'll sit down, chat with the ladies a little bit here and there and buy buy them a drink or something. Right. And those kind of, those kind of, of guys, they just don't exist in Hollywood anymore. And that's to me, that's just sad. Now, next up, Charlie Pizer, who was the first mate portrayed by Joseph bottoms. He seemed to kind of be the dashing young hero in it right right Right. once again that's a trope Mm -hmm. right right and and another trope this is the character who i look to as more as the white meat babyface meaning he is kind of the pure more innocent white hat wearing and that's the character of alex durant played by anthony perkins which is kind of a little ironic because what's anthony perkins most famous for playing psycho bates (laughs) yeah he's the other scientist on board the, the Palomino, and he is the character most sympathetic to Dr. Reinhardt's cause. Am I missing anything here? No, I, I've always, and I'm, by my own admission, I'm not the, I'm not the Trekkie that you are. Mm-hmm. 
I always saw I always saw his character a little bit more like Bones. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I saw I saw a bottom, Bottom's character is a little bit like Riker from Next Generation. And I think that that Forrester's character is a, a combination of all the captains we've ever seen in Star Trek. A little bit yeah. of Kirk, a little little bit of a little bit of Picard, a mm-hmm. little bit of Cisco. Right, right. Holland strikes me as the type he'd probably be neutral good, whereas Alex Durant is probably more the lawful good. Sure, but and, and I think that dynamic you see you saw in Star Trek all the time. Mm-hmm. You didn't necessarily see it in other, but the, 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 the dynamic between Kirk, Spock and Bones, who are, for those that don't understand, aren't big Trekkies, were meant to be th- three co-leads. They right. were meant to all three be seen as equals. And it, it's, which I always just brings up an interesting question off of, you're the more of a Trekkie than me. Who actually is the lead science officer? I know it's technically supposed to be, supposed to be Spock and, Bones is part of that because he's medicine, but doesn't doesn't that make him? You understand what I'm saying, I guess. Well, I, I just re- regarding Spock, I look at him more as he was the first officer. Yes, he had the the I think the proper title of science officer, but he wasn't the medical doctor that that McCoy was. McCoy right. was not a guy that's going to sit in the command chair. Yeah, and you know, but and also because there is a, a militaristic aspect to the Federation, even though that drives some people crazy because they. They believe that that form of 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 government and and what they have, well, war and military will be over. You have not watched Star Trek at the Klingons or the Romulans, have you? But I digress. Is <laughs> is that? And I think you see this a little bit in the black hole too. In the real world, no matter where the the, the lead medical personnel is, almost everyone will cede to them because if you're not healthy and your crew isn't healthy, you can't get anything done. So you've got to listen to the doctors and nurses. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Right, right. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to scientists in a moment here. But to continue through the cast here, Harry Booth, who is a journalist, I don't know how journalists get into space. I guess he was supposed to chronicle the, the flights of the Palomino or something. But he's played by Ernest Borgnine, who did win an Academy Award, I believe it was in the 1950s for the movie Marty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's one of those things, people of our generation, we never really saw Ernest Borgnine as a young or middle-aged man. We just always kind of saw him as the the gray-haired guy that looked like he kind of would have been the cool uncle or grandfather or something like that. Right. Because he would have been, what, what, mid to late 60s here, I want to say? Probably 50s. Yeah, yeah. But but certainly uh, but I, certainly past middle-aged, you know. Yeah, and he's one of those guys that looked older than he probably really was. What was the sitcom he did? Was it, it wasn't McHale's Navy, was it? I think it was McHale's Navy, yeah. So that was, that was my first exposure to him, the old reruns of that yeah. on the UHF station when I was a kid. Mine was Airwolf, but then I saw Mikhail's Navy. Oh, okay. I but, forgot he did Airwolf, but he was awesome in that. But oh, yeah. Airwolf, yeah. Airwolf and, and, in general was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And to Ernest Borgnine's credit, I think, I remember even shortly before he passed, people were asking, oh, how was John Michael Vincent on Airwolf? And he says, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> it's of like, course, once again, <laughs> as, as, as the John Carpenter horror guy, he'll always be he'll always be cabby from Escape from New York for me. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but moving on with the cast, we had Vincent. The main robot from the Palomino, voiced by Roddy McDowell, he's kind of the good chunk of the comic relief, even if he's not saying things that are funny. Like, one of the things I remember when they're repairing the ship, the ship, and Forrester and Pizer are talking about, well, why is he letting us do this if he's actually up to no good? And Vincent says, a wolf is still a wolf, even if he's not eating your sheep. Yeah. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't, I didn't even say it at one point in the movie. Vincent is actually an acronym, isn't it? Correct, correct. Vincent like, was... Like virtual intelligence yes. or integration or something like that. I can't remember. Right, central, yeah. And then and then Bob was also a an acronym as well. Because because Bob was the older, clunkier robot. He's found on board the Cygnus, and he's voiced by Slim Pickens, who we probably best remember as being the side henchman in Blazing Saddles. He was Harvey Corman's kind of first mate in that. Right. But, of course, he was cast in that role because he was one of those guys back when Westerns ruled Hollywood. He was always the comedic sidekick in all the old Westerns. Right, so, so it made sense, yeah. Yeah, him and, and Gabby Hayes and Walter Brennan, and there were a few others. But these were guys that made their career playing that particular role. And, and just to clarify, Vincent Stan stood for Vital Information Necessary Centralized, 
and Bob stood for a biosanitation battalion. So basically, Bob okay. was a janitor. Oh, and one I totally forgot. How can I forget? Andy Devine was also in that group of guys that were always the comedic sidekicks from that <laughs> right. era. Of course, who had already worked with Dizzy at that point, voicing Friar Tuck in, in the animated Robin Hood. <laughs> and what a great soundtrack that movie had. Uh, Roger Miller, heck uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, the main villain was Dr. Hans Reinhardt, played by Maximilian Schell, who coincidentally shared the name of the robotic villain, Maximilian. It actually was pure chance. They uh, modeled the, the character of Hans Reinhardt after Werder von Braun, who, of course, helped help the uh, Americans after defecting during World War II. Right. And his, uh, one of his middle names, because he had like five names, one of his middle names is Maximilian. I thought, oh, that's cool. And then right. they, they gave that to the big red robot. And Maximilian just kind of has a, a, a heel-ish uh, bad guy sound to it, the way it rolls off the tongue. Right, right. You know, I, I mean, once again, to bring up horror, Maximilian Shell would go on later to play a a bad guy in John Carpenter's Vampires uh, in the 90s. And being a fan of that movie, and I know it's one of the more polarizing movies that John Carpenter I've heard a lot of negative about it, yes. I actually liked it, but then again, I read the book it was based on first. So I have a little bit of rose-colored glasses where, where Carpenter's concerned. The character that he plays in that is a cardinal. Not too far off from Maximilian in this, okay? <laughs> Which what I mean by that is, is yes, he's the bad guy, but he's charismatic enough that you don't just outright hate him from the jump like Palpatine. You just know Palpatine is evil and you're not supposed to cheer for him from the get-go, whereas you're kind of trying to find a reason why Maximilian might kind of be right. And in this movie, it's like you don't quite trust Reinhardt in the beginning. And it's one of those ambiguous things. It's one of the things I wanted to talk about here. And we, we talked about Doctor Who earlier. There are other actors considered for the Reinhardt character. And some of these names, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Donald Pleasance. There's my uh, horror trio right there. <laughs> right, right. And uh, about the only one missing there would be Vincent Price, although Vincent Price would have been amazing, too. Yeah, you yeah, probably <laughs> could throw Peter Laurie in there, probably be the other one I'd throw in there. With right, right. But one of the names is Patrick Troughton, who was Doctor Who in the, in the late 60s. And my, when I heard that, my, my mind wandered. And it's one of those things I think if you could compare it to anybody else, probably would be Peter Cushing because both Patrick Troughton and Peter Cushing could pull it off because you see Patrick Troughton as, as Doctor Who. He can be very charming. And I could totally see it where he's charming right out of the gate. Uh, Peter Cushing would too, charming to the last. And, 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 but then when the truth is found out and he realizes the heroes are onto what he's doing, that's when the heel turn happens, and that's when he's diabolic. And Patrick Troughton could pull that off as well, because one of my favorite Doctor Who stories from the classic era, Patrick Troughton did dual roles. He was Doctor Who, and then he was the character uh, Ramon Salamander. And the best way I can describe the Salamander character is he was a Bond villain. He was plotting ah. to take over the world through technology because he could control earthquakes. He learned how to control the the weather, and he would predict that all these bad things are going to happen. All these disasters are going to happen. And That's a total co- Bond villain, dude. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But yet, he's since he's played by Patrick Troughton, he's doing both roles. So it's literally, practically, Doctor Who versus a Bond villain. And to me, it's sure. just like, that is a break from the Monster of the Month thing that they used to do, so... But anyway, yeah, that, that's, that story is called uh, the, end, the, the Enemy of the World, if you ever want to look it up, because it was one of those that got uh, discovered recently. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned Donald Pleasance being one of the guys that was also considered for that role when he actually did play a Bond villain. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Ernst Stavro. Yeah. Oh, there's uh, a Blofeld. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ernst Stavro Blofeld. That's his full name. But because you got to remember, this is coming right off the heels of the original Halloween. So really, at that point, Donald Pleasant was as much more known as Blofeld than he was as than he was as Dr. <laughs> Loomis. That hadn't become the iconic character it would become for him yet. And it was, I think part of, I want your opinion on it. I think part of the reason it worked and it was, it was this, it was, it was there was a, such a gray area because the, that crazy hairdo and beard that that shell wears for the role that you can very easily as the viewer sit there and say well is 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 he just freaking it has that mad scientist right look to it but at the same time 
when you realize that they, they've been fighting this black hole, it's also realistic to believe, well, he just hasn't had the time to shave and groom like you would because he's been worried about surviving. And, right. and 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 essentially battling this black hole, so the Cygnus does so the Cygnus doesn't get sucked in. Right, right. And if you're by yourself for twenty years, because presumably the ship wasn't supposed to be around that long, this is right. also presuming we have things like interspace travel and, and all that. If you're stuck out uh, there for twenty years, yeah, I would I would think personal hygiene would go out the window. Exactly. It's like there's there's enough plausibility as to why he's got this disheveled look. But I think it I think it contributes to the it contributes to the ambiguity they were looking for in the character early on. Well, look, come on, look at him, dude. He looks like he's nuts. But yeah, but there's a reason why he looks like that. That's that's good writing and that's good acting, in my opinion. Right, right, absolutely. Now, the final credited character is the character of Star, the sharpshooting center robot. Had no lines, but was portrayed by a professional mime named. Tommy McLaughlin and Star was short for Special Troops Arm Regiment. Now I'd seen reviews that were trying to say that the robots look like Darth Vader. I don't think they meant Maximilian because my understanding is in the production of Black Hole there was originally thought of making Maximilian black, but then they made him red because people they thought people think Darth Vader. Well, Star is black, and you look at that mask and the mask that the yes. other sentries are wearing. It's like that kind of looks like Darth Vader to me. So I think that's what they're meaning. But the guy who played Star, I guess he was essentially that era's Andy Serkis or, or Doug Jones then, if he was a right. mime. <laughs> right, right. It would make sense. It was my favorite part of, of the entire Black Panther movie is the fact you got people going, oh, that's what Andy Serkis looks like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yo, he doesn't look like Gollum. He doesn't look like King Kong and all he these other roles. He doesn't look like Snoke, you know? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't look like, no, no, no. He look, that's what Andy Serkis looks like. At least the, the characters that Doug Jones plays – they tend to make them CGI look a little bit like Doug Jones. Right. Now, the two robots on the good guy side, Vincent and Bob, they were voiced by Roddy McDowell and Slim Pickens, respectively, like we said before. Neither actor was credited on screen. I don't know why, but the evil robot Maximilian, who, of course, was the coolest-looking robot out of all of them, he had no dialogue, so no credit was needed. He was all done through animatronics. Now, but, now, I mean, I think, once again, you got to look to the past. Has to look to the future. Roddy McDowell gives you gives you sci-fi cred because, like you said, one of the few big sci-fi movies in the last ten years at this point was Planet of the Apes. Well, who was who was one of the main stars of Planet of the Apes? He was Doctor Cornelius, right? Yeah, he was Doctor Cornelius. Of course, everybody knows Charlton Heston. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape! But right. but <laughs> yeah, he was one of the apes. So yeah, it, it was that kind of gives you some that kind of gives you some cred, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Right with the sci-fi community. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think with Bob, especially with that southern twang that Slim Pickens had, that kind of making him that kind of cowboy thing, because Bob was supposedly a sharpshooter as well, although right. Vincent was also. But Yeah, well, uh, Bob was looking pretty rough when they find him. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and I always had a soft spot for things that are beat up but still functioning, because I guess it kind of gives him character, because I'm going to get really geeky with my NASCAR here, but what was it, 80, I want to say it was 80 or 81 when the top two guys going into the last lap of a race was, I think it was Donnie Allison and Cale Yarbrough. And Cale Yarbrough's car had already been crunched in the nose. So yeah, you have this. Bob, it was Bobby. It was Bobby. And it Cale, was Bobby. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, I think Richard Petty is the one that actually won that race, but, but it was one of the Daytonas. And I, know, I thought it was like 79 or 80. I know the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But they're going neck and neck. And of course, me, you see that car that's already been crunched and punched and dented up, and it's fighting there for first place. Me, I'm naturally, yeah, go beat up car. It's the, under, it's the underdog effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of respect it, too. I'm, I'm down with yeah. that. Yeah, so naturally you can understand what happens in the third act of the film with Bob, why I kind of cried when that happened. But <laughs> did, that, did, did that hit you in your feels as a kid? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> now, he, here's where we get to probably the most controversial part of the, of the film, and this is really where my notes are ending and running slim here is the ending of the film, because one of the problems with it was even going into production, there never was a firm ending written for the movie, to the point where even the cast didn't know the ending. It was just kind of left, what was it, ambiguous? Ambiguous, yeah. Yeah. So the cast saw that. Now, where 
I will say this because I'm calling this part of the podcast, if you're following up on the, on the, on the show notes, I'm calling this part Defending the Ending. Disney was banking on this movie making enough money to be a franchise, like there would be multiple sequels. So I firmly and, believe. Yeah, we would call this in today's nomenclature. It would it would be seen as a tentpole movie. Yes. Yeah. Like, had there been additional movies, then this ending would have been a setup to that. Now, one of my spins. This is my personal interpretation, whether it was meant to be or not. We have that infamous scene of Reinhardt and Maximilian floating, and Maximilian kind of lays down on him in a thing that looks really weird when you're an adult. But uh, then. Maximilian's face pops up, and Reinhardt's eyes are clearly inside, so they had merged. I kind of take that as an adult, that that's the classic horror trope of the mad scientist falls victim to his own creation, because it's made clear that Reinhardt made Maximilian, and there's even that scene where Reinhardt whispers to, Mac- to McRae, protect me from Maximilian, which... I, if I heard right, was an improvised line. It was like it was one of those things kind of on the spot because it was kind of, okay, is Reinhardt crazy or does he actually know what he's getting into type type thing? Right. Which, I mean, once again, you're talking about Tony Perkins. He kind of plays crazy good. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of plays crazy well. And it's just no matter how hard you try and how much he tried to separate himself from Norman Bates, it is what it is, right? Right, right. There's always, there's always going to be that, 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 that inclination to go, Oh, this is a crazy guy. <laughs> right. But I think it's generally kind of been interpreted that the ending of the movie is the good guys go to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. Right. Uh, and there probably could have been additional movies made, and there were comic spinoffs that didn't go very well that took place on whatever planet they landed on. But that's kind of how I figured, is the good guys went to heaven, the bad guys went to hell. Right. But like you said, I think that's a trope, and it goes all the way back to, to Frankenstein, the novel by Mary Shelley, where... The, the the creator has to winds up getting destroyed by their creation. And ultimately, it kind of starts with that in Frankenstein. We realize Victor's on the warpath trying to take out the creature, but he winds, if it does eventually wind up killing him. That's, that's where that trope came from. Right. You know? Now, are there any other personal favorite moments uh, in this movie? Because to, to me, I think my favorite sequence is the sharpshooting sequence between Vincent, Bob, and, and Starr. Uh, the, th- the two things I remember the most from watching it as a kid were when the crew s- first finds a Cygnus, because they spend like literally like probably five to ten minutes going over it, and you get all these beautiful visual sequences over this nice model that they made, and it reminds me of film commentary that I heard from George Lucas for, I think it was for Phantom Menace, might have even been for Return of the Jedi, where he said, so many filmmakers, it's like they make these great sets, so they wind up wasting screen time just showing you how great these sets and models are, and you really don't need to spend that much time. I think that's one of my criticisms with the movies. They probably could have cut that time exploring the Cygnus down to at least half. Of course, nowadays, it would all be fast-paced with CGI and you know, right. big uh, front-to-back uh, panning shots and all that. But that, that's, that's really one of my few criticisms, is they probably spent too long panning over the ship. Well, I think this is as good a time as any since you brought it up. To point out that this movie was considered a major, major breakthrough in what we saw in special effects. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no small part in the fact that a lot of the behind the scenes creative team, non in front of the camera stuff for Star Wars were involved in this movie as well. Right, right. They even tried to get the video technology, the film technology from Lucasfilm to do it, but they decided to make their own. So they kind of did a hybrid of traditional and motion video, m- meaning moving the camera instead of the the, the model's technology. They kind of did mm-hmm. a blend of that. And really, in, in a way, I think that kind of helped push the foot forward as much as Star Wars did, because it was that blend of traditional and uh, newer technologies at the time. Right. And, and you see, you hear all the time Star Wars praised as being this groundbreaking and revolutionary movie on the special effects scene and that's true well this movie was too and it's because it had the same people involved i just think that that's it is what it is and here and we are I, 40 years later and disney owns star wars now and, and i i don't think that can be underestimated by, by this film we can talk all about yes it was disney you know continuation of of disney doing a live action we can talk about being their first pg rated movie 
I might add for the geek cred, the fact that this movie was, even though it wasn't the success they wanted, I don't know if Tron gets green green lit if they didn't have the, if this movie it was a complete and utter failure. Right. Because that was along the same lines. It was kids could watch it, but it certainly wasn't a kid's film. But it's a PG live action Disney produced sci-fi movie. And Tron only comes, what, about three years after this? Two years after this? Something like 82. I think it was 82, because I remember going to see it in the theater and then going to the arcade next door, literally, and and playing it. Playing the game. Right. But then even Ralph McQuarrie, who, of course, is a le- legit legend in the sci-fi field, didn't he do some of the concept art for this as well? Um, I don't think he did it for Black Hole, because I know there was a father and son artwork, because the father had retired, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name now. But it'll be in the show notes at geekvilleradio.com. But before I forget, the other memorable scene, aside from the really long panning around the Cygnus, was, of course, Anthony Perkins' death at the hands of Maximilian. Because even as a kid, there was no blood splatter. There wasn't any gore. But boy, as a kid, you felt uneasy watching that. It was, it was a pretty horrific way to die. And, oh, yeah. You know, it was pretty dramatic, even, even as, as far as the film story goes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, it, it works on a lot of levels. This movie does, and one of them is that I don't think gets enough gets enough love is the acting. I think that you've got you've got you've got we've already mentioned Robert Forster, Maximilian Shell, Anthony Perkins, voice acting by by Slim Pickens and and and, and Rodney. These are these are good actors, you know. Right. And Maximilian Shell and Ernest Borgnine were both Oscar winners. Yes, these are not your typical your. What, what you think of as sci-fi actors. Because up till then, with the exception of Charlton Heston in, in Planet of the Apes, sci-fi was much like horror. It's a genre movie. It had B actors. It had, it had whatever. Right, right. Sci-fi for a good chunk of time, with the possible exception of 2001, it really wasn't known for truly groundbreaking effects. Because a lot of... You, you can watch Star Wars, and yeah, after the technology... Even if you watch the original versions, do you see how they did it? But you go back and watch Logan's Run or Planet of the Apes and or or the Godzilla movie. This is like, okay, yeah, there are there are people in suits. Right. You know? and, and let's be and let's be honest, outside of like I said, outside of Charlton Heston, name me one big name actor in the big in the big sci fi movies that Logan's run? No, they're a bunch of no right. names. Right. Two thousand one. It's known more as being a Stanley Kubrick movie than it's known for who was acting right. in it. Exactly. So this is this is that's not a knock on those movies. They're 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 classics and they're beloved and they should be. It's just that they're not really they weren't known for like their awesome acting, you know. Right. Right. And so Disney did a little different where they actually they actually hired and cast actors, like you said, guys who won Oscars, guys who were who were respected. Like Robert Forster had won an Oscar, but you said, like you said, he got he had gotten this role based on a TV show. He was a well he was well respected in TV role. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if he had an Oscar nomination, but right, right. And with Maximilian Shell, when you think about it, how many other movies, at least at the time, can you name where the villain gets top billing? He got right. top billing in the movie, and it's probably the second act before he actually appears. I mean, the la- I can't even think of that happening again until Nicholson getting top billing in the Tim Burton Batman. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll wind this up here as far as... Was there any scenes that, that stuck out as you, like, if you were going to recommend scenes to check out, if people aren't going to watch the entire movie, is there anything you would recommend they check out? Because I already said the the sweeping visuals of the Cygnus and Anthony Perkins' death. I would forewarn people. I went to rewatch this to get prepared for this, and it had been a while since I'd seen it, and that's one of the joys and beauties of Disney+, Plus. is this is one of the first movies I knew I was going to watch when I got that. And, and that's, how, of course, how I watched it was on that streaming service. I thought my streaming service was broken because even though... <laughs> I know what you're even, talking about now, yeah. Even though this was a, a change in how movie how Disney was doing movies, they went with the old school, which, for those of you who don't know, back in the day in Hollywood, on a b- big production, I'm thinking think Wizard of Oz, think Gone with the Wind, things like that, they would start out with what, what we would call the overture, which is essentially the main theme of the soundtrack uh, at the beginning of the movie. It was often had credits over it, or there would at least be a title card that would say, that would say overture. You didn't get that on this. You got, was it about two and a half minutes of just black screen, which right. I get, I get the artistic 
thing they were going for, black hole, black screen. And maybe it was something to give people a little extra time to get to their seats or something, so they didn't right. miss any part of the movie. Right. But I, I did not, for the life of me, know what was going on. I kept hearing the music, but not seeing any any, any No credits kind of, or anything like that. Right. That thing, I was like, what in the heck is going on? I, I even skipped forward. I'm skipping forward like 20 seconds at a time in my Roku box. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> I wound, I'm backing out of it. Going to going to another movie on 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 Disney Plus. Starting it, I can't remember what it was. I think it was I think it was Avengers, right? And seeing, oh, okay, it's so it's it's not Disney. Okay, Disney Plus is not broken. And I went and I checked my connection. My connection is fine. I, I was I was just confused beyond all belief. I was like, what in the heck? And, and and then I was like, oh, I think this must be the this must be the overture. And sure enough, I started fast forwarding, like you said. And then I got I was like, oh, okay, that's going on. <laughs> but it really threw me for a loop. So I forewarn any of our viewers that decide to go, our listeners decide to go and watch this. Realize the first two minutes, you're going to see a black screen and just hear music. Don't worry, your 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 streaming service isn't broken. Your Roku or your console or your Fire Stick your TV, is not broken. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, everything is fine. That's just what it is. Okay. <laughs> All right, I think that's going to wrap it up here for our eighth entry into the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame with The Black Hole. And there's probably going to be more movies down the line. And if you like what you hear, we can be found at geekvilleradio.com. You can do a search for Geekville Radio or Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. But if you do a search for Geekville Radio, you should be able to find all of our podcasts where great and maybe not so great podcasts can be found we're on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher iheart radio you name it spotify just do a search and you can find us and train if anybody wants to talk to you about black hole or any of the other lesser known geek hall of fame entries where can they find you i'm always available on crazy train underscore jb on twitter always look always am, am willing and and wanting to hear feedback from from our listeners like i said if anybody wanted to join this one because they were a big black hole fan and they felt like seth was ignoring them they put that off on me not on seth it's just <laughs> lesser known geek hall of fame is one we're going to keep just 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 the, the members of the geekville radio staff unless maybe you made one of the films we're talking about or you played yeah, one like of the I said, characters if, we're talking if about. you can prove to us you're an, <laughs> if you're an expert yeah by all means we'll have you on but one of our regular listeners, and when we say expert, we mean expert. Don't We don't mean, oh, yeah, my dad's uncle's brother's cousin's friend was was the, the, the hairstylist for Ernest Borgnine back in the 70s. That doesn't count, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap it up here in the Geekville Radio Studios. Uh, thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. So I, I guess in memory of, of our of our dearly departed friend Norco, you could say that the ending was Maximilian Shell was inside the Maximilian Shell. I guess you could say that Maximilian put Maximilian Shell into his shell. Exactly. <laughs>